0: Hi everyone, Uh, my name is Nishan, and today's first Bible reading comes from Mark chapter 14, verse 55 to 65. Uh, You can find it in your pew Bibles, page 1008. So that's Mark 14, verse 55 to 65. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus, so that they could put him to death but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple, and in three days we will build another, not made by man. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up Before them, and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him.
1: Good evening, my name's Ellie. The second reading will be 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 to 25, and that's page 1201. It's 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves to the Lord's sake for every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to condemn those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect for everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honour the king. Slaves, submit yourselves to your master with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears under bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is a conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in this body on the tree, so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have been returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls."
2: Good evening again. Uh, we're going to be looking at that passage from 1 Peter chapter 2, so it'd be good to have that uh, open. Uh, let me pray. Father, we've just heard your word read. Now as, uh, as I reflect on it, we pray that you would teach us for your glory. Amen. We live in an age of unprecedented freedom, at least when freedom is understood as having choices. Uh, we have a huge array of choices about everything. Jeans, for example. You cannot just buy jeans. You can't do it. You have to make about 18 different choices uh, about you know, waist, cut, fit, fabric, colour, whether you'll have pre-cut holes. I'm sounding really echoey. Can we do something about that? Thank you. Uh, it's not just that I've had a cold and I'm more nasal than usual, so sorry, sorry about that as well. Um, coffee as well. I used to work at Campos Coffee, uh, and you know, we would kind of chuckle when anybody came in and uh, you know they'd say, I'd like, a white coffee. And we'd go, like, white coffee? <laughs> we don't sell white coffee here. You, know, you have to make about six decisions about the kind of white coffee you would like. But, of course, it's not just trivial things. It's also big things. Uh, we have choices about all sorts of far more important things. What to study... Where to work, what kind of career to aim at, uh, whether to, you know, start trying to date someone, whether to marry, whether to have children, how many children to have, where to live. These kinds of decisions are actually why year 12 is so terrifying for people. Um, I remember, I don't know if you know what I mean, I remember reading through the university admission guide and being confronted with this kind of infinite array of life possibilities. I'd been told by a careers advisor in year nine, who thinks that is a good idea, by the way, to give year nine kids careers advice? Anyway, I'd been told that I could do whatever I wanted, which I think was code for you don't seem to have any particular skill. (laughs) But i have been told this, and so the university question was this bewildering array of possibilities. And so I did an arts degree. But gone are the days, aren't they, when you just did what your dad did, Uh, You know, when your choices were formed by your family, your situation growing up, uh, how much money and what class your parents had, we can choose the way we want to go. We are free. Well, sort of. But it's not quite as simple as that, is it? Because of course, we have choices, but then we make them, and then we have to live with them. We don't just keep having choices all the way through our lives, at least not the same choices. Our choices have consequences that we then have to live with. And what's worse is that so often we make our choices before we know how. We make them as 17-year-olds or 21-year-olds, and then we're stuck with the results sometimes for the rest of our lives. If I had my time again, I don't know if you... You know this feeling I would not do the arts degree I did I'd probably do an arts degree but I wouldn't do it the way I did Do you know that feeling the subjects I chose were just completely arbitrary I looked at oh political economy that sounds really cool I'm going to do that What And and sometimes of course we make decisions with much more serious consequences choices about relationships to sleep with someone to marry somebody to break up with someone, about jobs, about whether to move away from home or not, whether to buy this or that property or invest in this thing. And then we have to live with those choices and they have far-reaching consequences for our lives. We may have a lot of freedom, but what is it for? What should we do with it? We have to make use of our freedom. And so often we're not clear about what we want when we do so. And then we're left with the consequences and we have to live with them because when you make a choice, you can't unmake it. Now, all of this might seem a bit depressing, but it doesn't need to. It doesn't need to because of what we're told in this passage from 1 Peter chapter 2. With this passage, we we begin a part of 1 Peter that deals with the way Christians are supposed to live in the midst of a mostly non-Christian world. Some of what it talks about at first seems a long way from our way of life, but it's actually really helpful because what this passage shows us is that there is something far more important than having choices. There is doing good. And that is something that, because of Jesus, we are always free for, whatever our circumstances. Let me show you more of what I mean by that. Our passage falls into three sections. It would be great to have it there. There's also an outline. Uh, verses 11 to 12, which summarize the way Christians are called to live in the world. Verses 13 to 17, which describe the attitude we should take to the structures in our society. And verses 18 and following, which focus on in on one group of Christians with particularly limited choices, that is, slaves. So come with me as we have a look at it and think about how it helps us today. First, verses 11 to 12, the Christian calling and mission within the world. In the previous passage, which we looked at last week, we saw Peter describe in the most astonishing terms what it actually means to be a Christian, how it means being chosen being special to God being his own people those who have received mercy and now he goes on to ask well how does that how should we live then and the answer we're given is that it means seeking to live strikingly good lives have a look at that verse 11 dear friends i urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul live such Good lives. Actually, the word Peter uses for good there is is more often just translated beautiful. Such beautiful lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. There's a positive and a negative aspect here. The negative is abstaining, saying no to bad desires. The desires, as Peter puts it, that attack your soul or your life. We have trouble with that idea of soul because we don't know what it is anymore. But in Peter's day, it was just kind of the life that makes you you, if I can put it that way. That's the negative side. The positive side is to live good lives full of good deeds. Now, let's notice a couple of things about that. First, I think that contrast is important. The two sides, negative and positive, interpret each other. The good lives and the good deeds Peter's talking about are lives that involve abstaining from sinful desires. And similarly, the sinful desires Peter is talking about are desires that stop us from doing good. What does that mean? It means, I think, that we can't rule out either what we might call a moral aspect of the the doing good Peter's talking about or an act aspect. I think it's easy to read these words with our own kind of prejudices uh, in mind. So maybe for some of us, we care about social justice, whereas for others of us, maybe we care about personal holiness. But Peter, I don't think, would have liked that alternative. He, He puts them both together. He talks about our desires, our moral life, and our deeds, what we do in the world. Second, notice that this is all to be done, in his words, among the pagans. Um, Peter doesn't imagine a kind of Christian commune where we exit the world stage left and just kind of happily hang out with each other. Actually, I think it wouldn't be that happy. But anyway, I mean, I like you, but it'd be a bit weird. But he just assumes we'll be in contact with the world around us all the time. Third, notice that the status of the Christian life in the world will be contested. On the one hand, Peter says, you'll be accused of doing wrong. For all sorts of reasons, people will say that what we're doing is evil. But on the other hand, Peter says, people will see your good deeds. And ultimately, even if it's only on the last day, they will acknowledge them. Now, there's a dynamic here that's important right the way through this passage. The Christian understanding of what living a good life looks like is, on the one hand, it's, it's different, actually, from the world around us. So that there are inevitably going to be moments where the two understandings clash. And yet, on the other hand, it's, it's also not completely different. Mostly, actually, there's a lot of overlap between what we see as good And what the world around us sees as good. And that overlap creates the space for Christians to engage generously with the world. And that says Peter is what you should be striving for. To live lives in the midst of this society of striking difference, purity, generosity, and goodness, lives which, yes, they'll sometimes create controversy, but which will also be recognizably good, if only at the end. Friends, is this your goal? Is this your ambition? Is this what you're actually shooting for in life, to live a life that is beautiful? I hope it is. And if it is, if you want it to be, then think. On the one hand, what what are the desires that wage war against your soul, that are holding you back? Are they desires for things, for people, for power, for experiences? And on the other hand, what are you actually doing by way of good works? What have you actually put your hand to? See, it is a challenge to live like this as strangers in the world, but it's also it's an inspiring calling to live a beautiful life like this. Let me urge you to, to think about it, to work out what it looks like for you. But, of course, we mustn't pause here too long because in the verses that follow, Peter actually applies this idea in ways which are, to be honest... Maybe surprising for us. Second section, verses 13 to 17. Peter speaks about the social structures and authorities. And basically what he says is this. Don't buck against the structures of authority you find yourselves under. In his case, it was the Roman emperor and his representatives. Don't buck against them because essentially they're there for a good reason. And you can basically go with them. Submit to them, he says, because your purpose is to do good, and mostly they're not fundamentally opposed to that. Now, let me unpack that a little more because we find it troubling. First, the word Peter uses for authority in verse uh, 13 there, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. It's actually a bit of a weird word. It normally just means creation. He says every human creation. And I think what he's getting at is the point that human structures of government are just that. Human structures. That is, Peter doesn't want his readers to have any illusions about what they're doing. The Roman emperor in that time was often regarded as a semi divine figure deserving of kind of fearful worship. But Peter cuts all that down. He's just a legitimate human authority a human reality that God has allowed to stand for the moment for a purpose. And so he is worthy of honor, but not more than that. Submit, respect, but don't go worshiping him. That's why he concludes actually in verse 17 uh, in, in the way he does. He says there's a kind of real contrast between what he says about just the emperor and what he says about the Christian family and God. Show proper respect to everybody love the brotherhood of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. Second, uh, let me also stress, we need to remember that Peter had no illusions whatsoever about Roman authority. Right? He did not think it was perfect. He'd seen it kill Jesus, and he'd been affected by it right throughout his ministry. And yet he still calls for a basic attitude of submission and respect. Why? Why does he do that? Because despite his experiences, he knows that despite all those problems, there was still a lot of overlap between what the authorities wanted and what Christians were called to do. The authorities, he says, verse 14, they aim to punish wrong and uphold right. And because Christians are called to do good, much of the time they'll be able to just happily Go with the authorities. Now, of course, Peter knows this can come unstuck um, because what the authorities think is good is not always the same as what Christians know to be good in their conscience. He, Peter himself actually at one point flatly refuses to do what the authorities ask him to do. In Acts chapter 5, uh, the, the, the Sanhedrin says, stop talking about Jesus. And he says, no. There's not a lot of nuance. He just says, no, I'm not going to do that. There's points at which it can come unstuck. And so when he says submit, he's not talking about a kind of absolute allegiance or about the limit cases where it becomes impossible, Uh, which is why, by the way, people don't know this, but there is this rich and nuanced history of Christian thinking about political authority. Um, I can point you to some books if you're interested. But Peter's interested here in a general attitude that finds as many points of common cause and harmony as possible and tries to work under and with the prevailing system and structures where it can. Because why seek controversy if we don't have to? The gospel is challenging enough on its own. Why make it more so if we don't need to? Now, the deep reason for this, of course is that what we're really interested in is doing good. See the deep principle in verse 16? Did you see it there? Peter says, you are free. But you're not free for yourselves or just to do what you want. You're free for God. Your freedom lies in being God's slaves. You're free for doing good. And that changes the way you engage with the structures within society. It means we can see the limits and requirements imposed by authorities mostly as not a disaster and an unfair imposition, but just as defining a space within which we've been given to freely do good. Okay, what does all this mean for us? We live, of course, in a very different world to Peter's first readers. Uh, in our world, authorities are not really fixed and untouchable uh, like they were in the Roman world, uh, nor anywhere near as hos- hostile. We kind of think anybody can be a leader, although that's not quite true, actually. You need a lot of money, and mostly you need a whole big political pedigree. The reality is we're ruled by elites, not as much as here, but a lot. But anyway especially if Jeb Bush becomes president in the US. That will kind of, you know, be the last nail in the coffin to no kind of families in power. But anyway. But it is different here, isn't it? You know, a democracy is very different to Roman rule. Uh, our brothers and sisters in China struggle with these issues far more than we do, uh, when they have to grapple with restrictions on where and when they can meet and what they can say. But in our context, mostly, submitting to authority doesn't seem like that big a deal. Well, let me just say a couple of quick things about this. First, there are actually plenty of areas in which this is very practical. For Christians and for churches, issues, say, of compliance, taxation, financial accountability, occupational health and safety, reporting, employment regulations, local government statutes, all sorts of moments in our normal lives... We can choose to respect the authorities we've been given to engage with or to resent them and try to wriggle out of what they want. This is actually a really practical principle. Do it by the book, we're told. Because God's will is that we never be accused of being cheats or troublemakers or destabilizing. And the only way you cannot be accused of those things is by not doing them. There will come points at which we can't do what the authorities want, but let's not bring them on if we don't have to. Second, though, I think that principle, that our freedom is for good, I think that can help us think really deeply and broadly about how to act within our society. The nature of our lives means that many of us do have actually a lot of discretion about lots of aspects of our lives, as we mentioned at the beginning, So how are we going to use those opportunities, the choices that are available to us? Remembering that our freedom is not ours. It belongs to God. It's not a right we have for our own advantage or enjoyment. It is for good. Now, that may not seem like much, but it is actually a valuable principle to guide you. It could shape all sorts of things about the way we make choices. It could shape your choices about job opportunities or career changes if they're available to you. It might make you think about the kind of work you do and how it contributes to others or it might make you think about the demands of your job and whether they get in the way of other things in life that you think it's good and right for you to prioritise. It might make you think about how much debt to get into or about the things you buy or how you engage with industry. Because sure, you know, we're free to drive everywhere in a big, dirty, engined car and to chew up coal and water like there's no tomorrow. But is that what our freedom is for? Let us live as free people. Free to be God's slaves and to use our liberties to do good so that mostly no one has anything to complain about. Okay, third section of our passage, the difficult bit about slavery. You thought that bit was tricky. Peter turns to address a group here that on the surface are anything but free. Slaves, he says, verse 18, submit to your masters respectfully. Not just to the nice ones, but also to the nasty ones. Slavery was a feature of the ancient world as basic as the idea of the market is in ours. It was just part of how things were and wasn't going away even if you wished it would. Of course, make no mistake, the New Testament is not pro-slavery. People say this, but it's actually not true. Paul, for example, lists slave traders among his list of really the worst people in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And the New Testament is crystal clear that the gospel meant slave and master were radically equal as brothers in Christ. And that's why Christians eventually did get rid of slavery. But it took a few hundred years to imagine new ways of organizing society and family. It's also why it's quite a different thing for us to think about slavery today. Unlike in Peter's day, we are in a position to actively oppose slavery rather than simply trying to gradually undermine it, which is what the early Christians did. And we should oppose it. Slavery, in the overall view of the Bible, I think, is is an abomination. And we should oppose it in whatever horrible forms we find it today, like the young women brought out from Asia to work in brothels. In Peter's day, though, slavery was just a fact of life for many, many people, including including many Christian slaves who just had to work out what it meant for them to live for Jesus in their situation. And so Peter gives instructions to slaves, not as an affirmation of slavery as an institution, But it's a recognition that a whole bunch of people have to live in this situation. Peter's instruction to slaves is to submit. To acknowledge their master's authority on the basis that as things stood, their authority had a kind of legitimacy that they should respect. But submitting doesn't mean, and this is really important, it doesn't mean giving away yourself giving away your conscience. No, submission is something only a free person can do because it's a free act that's not coerced. If you're coerced, you can't submit because it's something you do freely. The slave who submits is also, verse 19, a free person acting out of consciousness or their conscience before God. And that means, of course, that there are limits to submission because some masters will ask for things that slaves cannot freely give, which is why Peter knows that there is going to be suffering for them. But he says to suffer because you won't compromise your convictions. That is a beautiful thing. In fact, the the words he uses actually are it's grace with God. That doesn't apply, of course, in verse 20, uh, to suffering done just because you're a jerk or a thief or something. It applies to suffering done because you're actually seeking to do what's right. Now, did you notice there, in verse 20, how the theme of doing good emerges again? Uh, That's actually the theme of this whole passage, I think. The key to Christian identity in the world. The slave, you see, has the same deep freedom that every Christian has, a freedom to do good, to act rightly. And so we can submit to human masters if that is our terrible lot because there will be chances to do good within that situation. We can expect suffering, of course, because what we know to be good will sometimes, perhaps often, clash with the desires of our masters. But that is suffering freely accepted out of conviction. And that is a good work, a work of God's grace in our lives. You know, this is the bit that's furthest away from our world, isn't it? And yet I think there is something really powerful here for us. Because what this word to slave shows us is that having choices in life is not the freedom that matters most. What matters much more than having choices is doing good, living out of our consciousness of God. And that is something we are free to do, however limited our options. Because the freedom to do good, to live according to your faith, does not depend on having a wide range of options. It's the the freedom to choose to obey an order cheerfully, rather than resentfully. To endure a period of sickness, patiently rather than angrily to persist in a difficult relationship humbly and graciously rather than with a building bitterness. These are the freedoms that really matter and these are the freedoms no one can take away because all someone else can ultimately do is to make you suffer and then you are still free to endure it with dignity. Brothers and sisters, this is the freedom that really matters, the freedom to do good, to live out of our conscience before God. And this is a freedom we have, whatever our circumstances, however mistaken our earlier life choices were, however difficult our job situation, however trapped we feel and oppressed by responsibilities and burdens and debts and obligations. Our world tells us that what matters is freedom of choice, freedom to go our own way. But that's not what matters most. What matters is freedom to do good, to go God's way. And that is not mainly about having choices, not at all. You know how we know this? You know how we know all this? Because that is the freedom that Jesus had. And it's the freedom he has saved us for. That's where Peter ends and it's where where we'll end this evening. Verse 21. I love that this amazing theological statement is connected to the word to slaves. It's an amazing kind of affirmation of their dignity. They're the most like Jesus. Verse 21. Have a look at it. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin. And overseer of your souls. Do you see the freedom of Jesus? It wasn't freedom to live for himself and to go his own way, it was the freedom to obey God and to live for him and to do good. This is the example we follow because this is the freedom Jesus has given to us. In his free submission to the Father's will, he bore our sins on the cross. So that we could be not free for ourselves, but free from sin for righteousness. Not free to do what we wanted, but free to live for God. True freedom is not being the master of your own fate. True freedom is freedom with Jesus, through him and following his example. The freedom not to be a sheep. Wandering off, lost, maybe going your own way, maybe following some other sheep. The freedom that comes from being under the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Brothers and sisters, let me urge you to make this the great purpose of your life. To do good and to live for God and to use whatever options and choices you have to that end but also to just live joyfully within the possibilities of life you end up with, inspired by Jesus, knowing that because he bore your sins, you are truly free. And no one can ever take that away from you. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who live the most wonderful, free, joyful life at every point submitting to your will. We praise you for him and we praise you that through him we have forgiveness, freedom from sin, and life for righteousness. And Lord, we pray that that freedom would just fill our lives and give us great joy as we go forward in them. And we pray this in Jesus' name and by the power of your spirit. Amen.